Hey guys, Mato here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Mato. You know, in the United States, the removal of cannabis from the Schedule One of the Controlled Substances Act is a proposed legal and administrative change in cannabis-related laws at the federal level that can only really be undertaken by Congress. The executive branch, or the United States Attorney General, had proposed removing it several times since 1972, but it hasn't happened. And Schedule One is the most tightly restricted category reserved for drugs that have no accepted medical use. The rescheduling of cannabis is also an issue that needs to be addressed at the state level and often conflicts with cannabis legislation and legalization laws allowing for cannabis possession, but there also allows for cannabis possession arrests to continue and occur even in the states where it's been legalized. Well, my guest today is a graduate of Harvard University and Harvard I'm sorry, of Howard University and Howard University Law School. He spent several years as a legend, as a litigator for both Legal Aid Center of Southern Nevada and the city of New York. He's currently serving as the executive director of the Nevada ACLU. Atar Hasabula, thank you so much for joining us today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for having me. Um, excited to be here. I'm, I'm, I was geeked to get the invite and talk to talk about the subject. I I was really just so impressed last week when I guess you know the news hit the hit the fan that you have basically sued the is it the uh, medical board of Nevada is that how the, it works the Nevada State Board of Pharmacy um, so we sued them and um, we were successful uh, on descheduling cannabis as a Schedule One substance so the judge actually rendered an opinion that the state of Nevada has to deschedule it from Schedule One. Yeah, and there's there's a little bit of context to it. So uh, effectively, what happened was about 20 years ago, uh, Nevada voters enshrined medical cannabis into our state's constitution. So it was back to back ballot questions that passed. So um, two decades ago, medical cannabis gets approved in Nevada. Well, what's odd is that sometimes criminal law doesn't necessarily interface with with regulatory aspects and other uh, areas, including with respect to what's happened uh, related to cannabis. So two decades ago, voters pass uh, medical cannabis into law. Um, It gets put into our constitution. So it is the determination as to whether or not it can be used in medical instances for medical treatment um, is without question, uh, because we had uh, the dispensal of medical cannabis and medical marijuana cards here for many years. Um, What the interesting part was, was that during that entire time, the Board of Pharmacy in Nevada, the Nevada State Board of Pharmacy, never descheduled cannabis as a Schedule One substance. And the definition of Schedule One substance is it has uh, no medical value for uh, under treatment. Um, So that means if someone is in treatment, it wouldn't have medical value there. Um, And it can't be safely distributed uh, under medical supervision. Um, which both of those prongs are obviously fulfilled because that's why it's medical cannabis and people are using it. The challenge- well, you know, and I also just let, let me just not only interrupt you, but just let me stop you here for just a second. I mean, if we go back to, and this is something I've had a question about, and I've questioned and asked lots of lawyers, and no one has been able to say anything to me about it or give me an answer to this. The federal government, the same federal government that allows the DEA to convince Congress to schedule cannabis as a schedule one drug back in 2002 gave itself a patent 
on cannabis. It's patent 6603507. And in its abstract, it states unequivocally what the federal government has gleaned from years of research that shows the medical efficaciousness of cannabinoids. So it's almost like I, I just don't understand how can our government give itself a patent claiming that it's medically efficacious, stating that to the world, but then turn around at the same time and continue to leave it as a Schedule One drug. Well, so you know, the- that to me should have superseded, superseded all the laws across the country. I, I don't disagree. I think that obviously one of the more interesting areas and aspects there is this weird break between state law and federal law as well, right? So um, the Schedule One designation, well, there's been obviously significant impact across the board in a few different areas at the federal level. Really, when folks were being charged with possession or or sale of a Schedule One substance, it was state to state, and they're being charged under state law, not under federal law. And so what ends up happening is like in Nevada, for instance, you have really two decades worth of folks who are getting charged under the statute. And the worst part about this is when they did it, they did not disaggregate how they were, what what the actual substance was for the schedule one designation, right? So schedule one, for those that don't know, uh, not only includes cannabis uh, in Nevada, not only included, I should say cannabis, but also things like uh, heroin Uh, schedule two, which is less serious in Nevada, has methamphetamine, cocaine, and fentanyl. So meth and coke are both listed as Schedule II substances in Nevada, but cannabis was listed as a Schedule One, which is more severe. And when it says you're on it, I mean, most people don't know that right now a doctor can prescribe cocaine to people in a hospital for a myriad of illnesses and modalities. You know, I've heard it been prescribed for some uh, uh, asthmatic kind of reactions and some other things, pre-operative reactions. There are several usages and, and you know, that pharmaceutical grade cocaine is delivered to hospitals. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing is uh, my our advocacy and my advocacy in this space has really little to do with trying to get more things on Schedule 1. In fact, we'd like to see them removed. There's been success in certain uh, micro dosing levels for psychedelic medications and those that have been impacted by PTSD, but we continue to perpetuate this war on drugs. And really, the way that that was done was through this weird, nasty back channel scheduling status of cannabis. So, really, what happens in Nevada? Two decades worth of um, uh, of those issues where people are being charged under that statute, which there's there was other statutes they could have charged folks under, but they continue to charge them for possession and sale of a Schedule One substance. So you try to get data. Well, how many of these were related to cannabis? And they don't disaggregate the data because it's lumped them under that one charge. So they can make sure they can keep them in jail. Yeah. And, you know, we've what we've seen is even once they're released, they, they came through. So when recreational, our case was predicated on the plain language of what happens when we approve medical cannabis two decades ago and how that creates an automatic conflict with our state constitution that doesn't allow it anymore to be uh, viewed as a schedule one substance. It can't be because it has clearly proven medical value. And that's through the vote of the people, the same people 
whose taxes go to fund the same state board of pharmacy that says their opinion shouldn't matter. So it's not accountable to the public overall. Um, so our, our challenge was predicated on that. But even when recreational passed here about five years ago and, you know, we had a, the new uh, facilities, dispensaries popping up everywhere, they were still and still continuing to charge folks and convict people under this statute based on the scheduling order. Which is ridiculous. I mean, I know that, uh, you know, the vice president herself, when she was the attorney general in California, literally there were more people arrested under her for minor cannabis possession laws or violations than her predecessors. And, you know, she and the current president ran on this campaign and made sure they talked about it all over the country. They did interviews on some of the biggest radio shows there are saying that the first hundred days in office, we are going to do something to impact the cannabis laws and they haven't done a damn thing. And now all of a sudden last week, the president decides to step up to the plate and say that they are going to overturn the, I guess, the convictions of those people convicted under federal law, but it has nothing to do with those people convicted under state law. Yep. And they don't have the, they don't have the power there. And really what, so what was interesting here, and you know, it's kind of a, ours was the first time this has been done. To my knowledge, this is the first time there's been a designation by any state court that cannabis does have medical value as established under law and that scheduling it under uh, schedule one would be unconstitutional. Now, our position now, since there's a new regulatory body, our cannabis control board that came in afterwards, and they're dealing with the regulation of the enterprises associated with cannabis, that the Board of Pharmacy no longer has the ability. Our position has been consistent. The Board of Pharmacy does not have the ability to schedule cannabis at all. It is not it was not they were not able to do it as a schedule one for that 17 year period. And since the cannabis control board came into place, they're no longer permitted to do it at all. So that that issue is still on the table. We're hoping the court comes back on our side on that issue. But the overall nature of the the challenge in and of itself, what really prompted us to file this was we look for impact litigation. What can we do to have the widest impact? And how do we think about these issues creatively? Now, look, like when this was actually passed, nobody on my team was even close to being a lawyer. Right. So that was one of the arguments the Board of Pharmacy gave. Well, they had, you know, two decades to do this, but we were able my team right now is able to think about this a little bit more creatively. What happens when there's a clear conflict of law and they're ignoring the will of the people? Most issues, when we say all politics is local, most of these issues come down to what's happening at the local and state level. It doesn't, you know, there's great federal guidance on certain issues, but in many other instances, it's not impactful the same way that folks think it is. The one point that we would have love to have seen this come earlier a few months ago was because the Board of Pharmacy's argument here was largely predicated on the federal government's designation of cannabis as a Schedule One substance. And they kept relying on that. But, you know, our point was was pretty clear. You're not the DEA. You don't work for the feds. That's not who's giving you a paycheck at the end of the day. It's the people of the state of Nevada and your state agency that's chartered under state law. And so regardless of what the federal government's saying in Nevada, it's legal. It's been decided you don't have the authority to charge anybody under that. And we're hoping that more states do the same. And and what has been the pushback even now? Now, so again, let me let me get this right. So the judge has said that you're correct. And this needs to be rescheduled. So whose responsibility is it going to be to reschedule it? Will it be the pharmacy board or will it be the cannabis board that you the cannabis organization? So 
it, the judge said that scheduling it as a schedule one substance is unconstitutional point blank period. So for us, that means that, you know, those years and I'll go into what those steps look like. Those years are going to be dealt with there. The question now is whether there's the any ability to schedule it at all. And our position is no. The Board of Pharmacy, I would imagine, might come back and they might say, well, you know, this can be a schedule four substance. And so it's not going to be as serious. And X, Y, and Z. They don't have the authority to do it anymore. That's our, our position because you have a dispensary on every corner and people are going in and buying it and they're, that, they're allowed to do that. But if you go and you buy an edible, this loophole allows for such that if you go and you buy a pack of edibles in a store and your buddy Venmo's you $15 for half the pack, they could have been charged with a category B felony under state law for basically the sale of a schedule one substance. Well, and it also throws me a little bit because if they rescheduled it, let's say the board decides to reschedule to schedule two, schedule three, um, if they did reschedule it, then that would literally be contrary to federal law because then doctors would have to write a prescription for it, correct? Yep, and right now, doctors are only allowed to write a recommendation under federal law. I mean, if this would get so confusing that I think that they ought to just stay the heck up out of it. That's what we said. It's very convoluted. And we're hoping that they I was surprised, quite frankly, that they fought it this hard. You know, they spent so much time combating what we were doing, saying that we were trying to blow up this entire system. And when it comes down to it, if it's an inept and unjust system, it's not untrue. It should be blown up. It, right. But at the same time, the, the challenge was pretty specific on our end. They started citing to they said that, you know, other there's been no finding of medical value in the United States, but what they, that's the, that was the rule under state law was there needs to be a determination in the United States. But see, now there's a question. If they say that though, why can't you then turn right around and hit them with, how about six six three zero five zero seven? That's well, the federal government saying here, that it's efficacious. Here's the thing. We didn't need to do that because they, a lot of times what government lawyers do, and I know this is a former government lawyer is they'll, they'll mix up terms and they'll try to do it kind of in a sneaky way in the United States is a lot different than by the United States. And the language was precise. It said in the United States, a majority of states, more than 30 states have found that there is medical purpose associated with 38 plus the District of Columbia. So there was no need for us to even go down that path. We recognize what their arguments were going to be when they said it. And that inconsistency where, you know, they're relying on federal guidance so they can do this and this and this. Well, if we're suing the the DEA um, as a whole, which, you know, that'd be interesting to see if that ends up happening. I'll be really curious to see if they just, you know, move into a descheduling phase now. But if that was the case, that would have been our argument there because there's not only the, the patent association that you've mentioned, They've been uh, utilizing it in test cases. And so you don't have to necessarily, the the key point under Schedule 1 is the under medical supervision part of it. And so if they've been testing under it, if there's been studies and there's been statements made by administrations present and past that indicate some level of uh, medical value that's associated with it and or some level of safe distribution, it would have needed to be pulled. And I mean, what you just said, some, some indication from this government present or past, this government stated unequivocally in its abstract that it finds cannabis and cannabinoids to be efficacious for various modalities from ischemic insults to some forms of uh, uh, chronic disease. And it's neuroprotected. They go through the, if you read that abstract, uh, it tells you unequivocally that, you know, the federal government believes that cannabis is efficacious. And that's part of the reason why our taxpayer dollars went 
to Israel in the 80s and early 90s to actually do a lot of the research that was done by Dr. Meshulam. And our, you know, NIDA gave Dr. Meshulam one of their highest awards. NIDA, of all people, you know. Um, so it, it really, I, I just wondered why no one has decided to just straight up sue the DEA for, you know, hypocrisy when you have one agency of the government stating that it is efficacious and the other one stating that there's not. Well, this is the body that overrides that, the patent office. If they're willing to give the government a patent and have held it for 17 years, clearly they must agree with what's written. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. So here's kind of my take on that. And it's a it's a weird, wonky sort of um, subject matter area. I think part of the challenge on this federal front, right, like we have the, the scheduling status on the federal front. The number of cases of those that are being prosecuted under this specific provision without other provisions uh, being included, I don't I don't have the data and the numbers because a lot of that's also not disaggregated by the DEA clearly. I'd be interested in wondering on stand on a standing front, like which plaintiffs are coming forward, you know, or if this is part of a wider scheme to basically be evasive of that and allow that sort of current uh, status and recommendation and guidance from the federal government to be used to guide states into doing it. Because you can challenge the state. You have standing under state law to be able to to, to challenge in the same way because that's what's led to your conviction. You're charged under that statute. But on the federal front, it was really interesting for me to see the president's statements in terms of like, you know, pardoning minor offenses. I don't know what that that total number is, but I would imagine that it pales in comparison. It's a far cry from the number of total individuals who've been charged under state law. Far cry less. I think it's like 50 some 100, 6,200, where we know that there have been close to three or 400,000 people charged in the last year or two. And, you know, when we also look at it, you know, I've often called this a re-enslavement tool. I mean, this is a government that does not want to give up the opportunity to put brown and black people in jail. So this is an opportunity to use it that way because they don't use it the same way when it comes to people who aren't of color. So they don't want to give up that opportunity. We're going to hold that onto that to the last dying breath. Tell me a little bit about the CEIC, your clients that are in the lawsuit against the Nevada Pharmacy Board. Yeah, so we actually had two clients, um, and I can talk about both. I'm a member of CEIC. Um, they're they're a member, like most of their members are members of the ACLU as well. So there's a lot of over overlap there. The Cannabis Equity and Inclusion Community was founded in Nevada about three or four years ago. Their founder, Aisha Goins, a uh, close friend of mine, ACLU supporter as well, um, has sort of been leading at, on the equity front here in Nevada as it came down to licensing, right? So we had all these dispensaries start to pop up. And there were, at the time, if I recall correctly, two black licensees in Nevada, two, like total. 
And so her goal uh, when she founded this group was to create uh, the ability to advocate for equitable policies, to create access into this marketplace, particularly for those that have been deprived of that access because of this historical failed war on drugs. Um, so this group has been a leader on that front. Unfortunately, what they recognize was certain people who want to enter into the space um, are unable to. And part of the reason for that is because of past cannabis convictions. So they're diverting resources out to get people's records sealed, to try to assist them in passing background checks. Um, all the meanwhile, you know, on our end, when uh, when we had discussed the, the issue with them, one of the very first things we discussed was impact. We, you know, what's the impact of this potential litigation going to be? Um, and our goal is uh, long term to make sure that those convictions, which should have never occurred, um, be be uh, effectively deleted. Right. Like we don't even putting the burden on people to go seal their records. There's people who have died with a conviction on their name for something that was unconstitutional and their names should be cleared. And if the government doesn't have an excuse for why they can't pull their name, they should come up with the ability to fix it. Uh, you know, they've, they've been charging people for years and feeding them into this mass industrial military or sorry, uh, prison industrial complex, and forcing them into prisons and uh, ensuring that they don't have the ability once they're released to even participate in this marketplace. And all the meanwhile, you a few years later, you have posh investors coming in with, you know, seven, eight, nine figures sweeping up. And these are the folks that are left behind. So CEIC has been at the forefront of ensuring that there is the ability to have equity in that regard. One of the things they did was they forced a piece of legislation that requires a certain number. We're starting consumption lounges finally uh, here in Nevada. Um, and there will be a certain percentage of those lounges designated to social equity applicants who are those that have been impacted really by the war on drugs. And that's where really, you said there's another client too. There's a second client we have who's an individual. Uh, his name is Antoine Poole. And um, Antoine was, uh, came to me through a, another community contact to do a lot of community work. And one of the things that stood out was uh, a few years ago, he was convicted under this statute. Um, Antoine is trying to become a barber. And one of the biggest issues that folks are not aware of um, across the country is something called occupational licensing. Um, and the strictures that go in there, Nevada is the fourth most occupationally licensed state in the country, which means that pretty much to do any job, you need a license. In order to get the license, you got to go through background and they check everything. And Antoine was having um, challenges even getting a barber's license because of this uh, cannabis, this schedule one conviction uh, for cannabis um, that was just a few years ago. And so his life has been directly impacted by this as, as of so many others, right? We think about 10, 15 years ago, what was happening to these are folks that want to be in the military. They want to be uh, police officers. They want to, you know, be firefighters. And because they have now what appears to be an extreme designation on their uh on their scope on their criminal record and because it, it the the does does the i guess the the conviction show that it was cannabis or does it still just no. say schedule one it so, just so the, everybody's gonna think that they were out you know selling well, heroin yeah selling heroin or you know other dangerous extremely how, dangerous how does, how does he get to fight that though because the state could just come back and lie well so here's the thing now is that um on the overall nature of it, you know, our next step with him is likely to seek an overturning of his conviction, right? And if his conviction's overturned, that record, it's its not about record sealing. That provision, entire conviction needs to be overturned. 
Um, we're looking right now at figuring out what the best solution is. And part of this is kind of like building the ship as you're going, because you know we're trying to write 20 years of injustice, right? And so like, how do we best do that? We don't even have access to the district attorney's office files for what the convictions are. Realistically, the responsibility should be on their end. And what that should look like is they should be able to scan within their system. There's enough quality coders that are out there, scan within their databases to discover who had a cannabis and the way it would be framed within their system would be cannabis. And then they'd say two wit or sorry, schedule one to wit cannabis, right? That would be the designation. It wouldn't show up that way on a, on a charge sheet or on a scope, but it would show up that way in their system in some way, shape or form. So they should have the ability to go through that and purge those records from the file because those should have never existed. It, it's quite frankly, unconscionable that the next step is going to end up being which is probably likely is going to be people have to go do this themselves because the state messed up. And the state's not going to do it because they don't want to, they, they want to keep people down in a way. I mean, I, 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 I'm just trying to understand and trying to get this through my psyche. Why would any state office fight the opportunity to have taxpaying citizens? You know, from my vantage point, the biggest reason why is because um, it's really two, two reasons. First, I think they were embarrassed that they didn't see this. And I thought I think they thought that they didn't want to come across as like, crap, we forgot about the, you know, we weren't really paying attention to this loophole either. So, you know, we don't want to have a bunch of mud on our face. So instead of instead of dealing with it that way, let's go ahead and, you know, just fight it and pretend like it was intentional. I don't know if it was or it wasn't. Second, this has led to so many pretextual stops over the course of time with police and especially young black men, right? They'll say that, you know, they'll use this as the justification for uh, invasive stops, searches and subsequent arrests. Oftentimes you won't even see any other charges that were um, associated there, but you'll see, you know, possession of a schedule one substance. Well, you know, how do we get to the point where that's the only charge? What was the basis for the stop, right? So it's been used as a tool in that regard. I think the, the final point I would say is that, you know, whether it comes down to intentionally keeping individuals non-liberated because of their previous interaction with the criminal legal system or whatever the case may be, the state has, and the government in general, has been too lazy to fix their mistakes of the past. They have failed to invest in that. There's been no recourse, and that's really since the beginning you know, of this country's founding. There's not been an intentional effort to go back and fix the wrongs of yesterday. It's like, let's pretend like it never happened, even though it very much happened. Which is really, how many other states that have, well, there's 38 states in the District of Columbia that are, are legal right now, and I guess there's another five or six on the ballot coming up here in midterms. So, I mean, we could be in a position where there's like 40-something states that have some form of legal medical cannabis program, and I would I bet that this is really an issue in every single one of those states. Yeah, you know, we've actually, um, oddly enough, that we, you know, I think one of the, my favorite parts about working on cannabis reform or, um, or you know, anything related really to issues that have involved the war on drugs is it brings together unusual allies um, and folks that you might not necessarily consistently break bread with. One of our biggest supporters, I feel like, in this action has been a group out of Minnesota that I keep up with very regularly now. Uh, the group's name is Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition, RAMP. And their Minnesota chapter had reached out at the beginning. They shared information about what was going on in other communities. We shared what was going on in ours. And, you know, so many communities are dealing with the same thing. So many states are dealing with the same thing. It seems like a natural choice to just go ahead and deschedule. I, I was kind of frustrated a little bit when I saw the um, 
the President Biden's statement on it because I don't think it needs any more additional review. Pull it off schedule one. Tell your people to pull it off schedule one. Right now. Tell Congress, pull it off schedule one right now. What else do you need to study? It's already been studied ad nauseum, right? Like there's nothing left to study. It's proven. I mean, this is one of the things I talk about a lot on this podcast, the fact that in the last 10 years, there's over 35,000 peer-reviewed studies published around the world on the efficaciousness of medical marijuana, of cannabis. In the last year and a half alone, over 3,500. There's more published information on cannabis than there is on alcohol. There's more published information on cannabis than there is on opioids, fentanyl, than there is on aspirin. Come on now. I mean, how much more research do you need? Every time I hear apologists say, well, the, when we have more studies and research, I feel like saying, shut the you know what up. You know yeah, what I mean? Totally with you. I mean, you know, for me, the obvious, um, the obvious barometer right now is fentanyl, right? right? Carry that same passion for fentanyl as you do for cannabis in terms of like, you know, and, and fentanyl has been so it's been helpful for quite a lot of people out there. But here's the thing. Nobody can convince me that fentanyl is safer than cannabis. There's well, nobody we, that, that could reasonably even believe that. But I'm, I'm sorry if I say, I'm racist when I say this, but it's unfortunate that in the last five years, the reason why everybody jumped aboard this whole opioid addiction thing is because finally the color of the people who were dying in the streets changed. Finally, yeah. the color of the people who were dying in the streets for fentanyl majority of them are not black. You know, you have a lot more of this happening in rural Caucasian communities than you do in inner city black because the usage isn't the same. And so now we we want to have this, you know, if you remember a few years ago how, you know, this country was going crazy. You had movies being produced, dope sick and all this kind of stuff. And nobody's talking about it today. But the same number of deaths are happening today for opioid addiction and fentanyl, but they're not talking about it because somebody finally realized that, oh, excuse me, a lot of the pictures that we see of these people in these cars passed out and people leaving their children behind, they are people of color. Yeah, so, the other, I mean, the other thing there, even on every opioid issue, how many Xanax over, overdoses did we see? How many Oxycontin overdoses did yeah. we see? How many Percocet overdoses did we see? The biggest issue is that you know, for the longest time, big pharma's lobbyists have been powerful presences in D.C., in Congress, walking the halls. And big cannabis has never really existed because they've banned it forever, right? So now we're starting to get to a space where that lobbying structure has changed. And we recognize, I can see it here on, at the state level, when you see a lot of these dispensaries or these facilities come in with lobbyists, the narrative changes. Now we're going to treat it with respect as if it's any other profession, any other industry. But 10 years ago, when there were no lobbyists or business dollars behind it, and it was just, you know, a substance that folks were using in large part for medical treatment, at that point, it was simply stigmatized and viewed as, you know, being an undesirable within society if you were someone who utilized it. I agree with you 100. I think one of the things I keep, I, I keep beating up our industry over the fact that we are our worst enemy. I mean, in the last year, like what, in 2021, there was over $25 billion in legal cannabis sales across the United States. And we know that that's triple if you, you know, probably $50 billion more in the gray and black market. And there's enough money, though I know this industry is heavily taxed. And yes, 
you know, that 25 billion, you cut that in half and really that's probably what the profits would look like. But still, that's enough money to hire lobbyists. And <laughs> this industry has got to pharmaceuticalize a little bit in its approach to government and start doing the same things that the pharmaceutical industry has been doing. And the only reason why we get this pushback is because the pharmaceutical industry is spending so much money. I would bet you that they're the ones that are behind, you know, your uh, uh, the organization that's fighting you in Nevada. You know, that's where they're getting their money to go to court. It's very, very interesting because whenever we talked about this historically, one of the biggest issues was that the ability to have patents over each of these substances, not utility patent, but actually uh, patents on the products themselves, um, if it's, you know, if it's not something that's been compounded, was challenging, right, early on. And so now folks have started to get better at doing that. And so because there's been IP protections, it's been a little bit easier. One of the more fascinating components of what happened in Nevada when recreational passed, it's not just, you know, the, the lobbyists there uh, on the, you know, on the pharma side or uh, now on the cannabis side to a degree, but the alcohol lobby and the tobacco lobby uh, have played a role. The alcohol lobby, for instance, was partially responsible for how we ended up with recreational cannabis in Nevada. They had a deal cut that they were the, their trucks would be the ones utilized in transport from, you know, cultivation facilities to the dispensaries. And so it was sort of like, if we're not getting paid, nobody's getting paid, but that right. doesn't do anything for people who need it. Right. Absolutely. Now, how many, again, I, I suppose, do you think all the states are really facing the same thing? Do you, have you had other states reach out to you and say, look, help us, you know, orchestrate a lawsuit here? Um, do you think there's a movement going on? Are people starting to pay attention to what you're doing? Well, you know, we were really excited because it was a huge ruling and, and it still is a huge ruling. But I think part of the luster of, you know, what we've been discussing with some of our counterparts was maybe partially lost with the Biden decision last week, even though, you know, once we reinforce and folks recognize like, hey, those are federal charges, not state charges. And mo most of these states are not so altruistic as to do it on their own. Um, so, yeah, we've we've connected with our counterparts in other states. I know that there's going to be some desire by some of the states to kind of step into this work a little bit deeper. But there's, you know, I would encourage anybody who's seeing if you're an attorney and your client gets charged under the statute still for possession or sale of a Schedule One substance, you should go and copy our pleadings and use that as part of your argument. And we will not be offended at all. We would be happy to see it happen because nobody should be arrested or charged under this B under this BS uh, sort of continuation and perpetuation of the war on drugs. And can I ask you also, is, is the ACLU working on doing this cannabis reform at the federal level also? You know, there, there's there been uh, a push um, at the federal level. I wouldn't be surprised. And I hadn't really been as closely involved there. I, I know I've had conversations with, you know, our smart justice team nationally, which really works on issues that are you know impacting folks uh, that are have been uh, touched by the criminal legal system. We always use the words criminal legal system on our end because there's no justice within it. And so I know that they've they've been um, doing that work. They've had those conversations. We've been pushing for decarceration. And um, I think that the biggest challenge becomes on their end, their sort of their biggest uh, assistance in the space as it's going to pertain to impact is supporting states to be able to do the work. Because as we mentioned before, so much of this is happening at the state level. We see places, you know, across the country. And it's shocking to, to know that like, there are still states, and I, I guess I'm blessed to live in Nevada in this regard. There's still states that have still don't want to see any level of, you know, even medical cannabis get through. It just makes no sense. And, but, but it's also because I got to tell you, I, I just really feel 
feel strongly about the fact that a lot of those states just don't want to give the impression that they agree with science. They agree with the fact that there is a medical efficacious to this, and maybe we were wrong in the past, and we use this to railroad brown and black people, and if we change our law, we're going to be admitting to that. So they don't want to admit to that. So, you know, I mean, I think this racism still plays as big a role in this as it has from day one. Yeah. Also, they're totally disingenuous. I mean, you hear those same, the leaders of those same states come out publicly railing against fentanyl. They don't do anything to stop the the pervasiveness of fentanyl distribution within their their state borders, right? They, right. they talk about people doing things like smuggling it across the border, A, B, and C. And I can tell you here in Vegas, we've We've had fentanyl and issues with fentanyl for quite a long time now. It's not brand Absolutely. new to us in the last year or two. And so to hear it now become a talking point, well, you know, do something about that then. But instead, they, I've, I've heard pundits on some of these these cable channels say, well, we got to stop this fentanyl from the border. And not all fentanyl comes in across the border. And, you know, oxycodone comes in from right here. So, uh, excuse me, how come we're not talking about putting a little pressure on the pharmaceutical industry that knows that it's killing people, knows how to stop it, but won't do that? Crazy. Yeah. Absolutely insane. Anything else you want to add, my friend? No, I, you know, we're appreciative for the time. Um, you know, for those that are interested in learning more, you know, feel free to follow us on Twitter. Uh, our account's ACLUNV. Mine's A-T-H-A-R-E-S-Q. Um, we're always happy to be a resource on this specific subject. Um, again, it's, you know, it's something that's close to us because we've seen how many people have been impacted by it and it's a pervasive problem. I'm hoping that, you know, most of these states can just come together collectively and, and deal with this. Otherwise, maybe Congress can attempt to preempt it if they can ever get their act together. But we'll see what the deal is, uh, you know, as time progresses. We'll see. Well, look, is there anything that we could do to help get the word out and keep getting the word out? Let me know. I'd love to have you back. If anything changes, anything happens, please come on back and give us an update because I know our listeners are going to want to know. Uh, we we very much appreciate you, Montel. And as a, as a huge fan, all of us are fans in the office. So we're just grateful to be in company with you. And thanks for all you're doing. No, thank you so much, sir, for being a part of the show today. And make sure you tune in if you want more information about how we can actually how you can even be a part of this fight. Go ahead and go up on those websites that Batar uh, has given and make sure that, you know, you uh, lend some support. I'm sure you guys need some funding, too. So, you know, let's uh, see if I can get some people to send you some funding your way also. So thank you so much for being a part of the show and make sure you tune into the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.